Hey, y'all. Welcome to Cross Politic. It's the Midweek Fix. And as you can see, it's just the water boy here in the studio all by myself. Knox is out filming a uh, kind of a kind of an interesting project. We're excited about the, the project he's working on, so he's filming this week. And so I'm holding down the fort here in the studio. But don't worry. We got you guys taken care of. We got a great talk that we're going to drop you into. Um, uh, uh, Pastor and Dr. Ben Merkel, president of New St. Andrews College, spoke at our rally in South Dakota. And you don't want to miss this talk. It was a really good talk. Of course, club members have already been able to catch this talk, and we're going to release it to the public um, so you guys can kind of benefit from some of the material that we filmed at the rally in in South Dakota. So obviously, this brings me to uh, why you should become a club supporter in the first place. If you join the club, you can get access to all the content that we have on our network, um, including all the conference contact that our club members, if you can't make it to the conference, get access to. So join the club. This is a great way to support us. And then get ready for our conference in September, September 9th through 11th, Politics of Sex. We got Pastor Vody Bacham talking about critical sex theory. Pastor Doug Wilson talking about gay pulpits. We got Doug Tenapel talking about lies and propaganda. We got Pastor Toby talking about the Molotov family, the Molotov cocktail that the family is, Molotov family. And then, of course, we got uh, David Bonson talking about um, kind of the, the the central economic drivers in society, which is the family, home home economics. So really excited what's going on in, uh, for our t- conference in Tennessee. I uh, hope you guys enjoy Dr. Merkel's talk. Um, it was something I'd been thinking about, but um, I needed something to say. So I said, uh, you might not be pedo-baptist or post-mill, uh, but the left is, and that's why they're winning. And... And I said that, and then they did the wah, and you know, the chocolate Knox was on the organ or something like that. And I think it went to my head. Um, and I think that they probably would have done that no matter what I said. I think that, you know, but anyhow, uh, it went to my head. And so I was like, okay, I guess I better do this as a talk. So, so that, is, uh, that is what is sort of shaping uh, my comments here. You might not be paedo Baptist or post mill, but the left is, and that's why they're winning. Now, I, I understand that I'm speaking to a diverse crowd. You're not necessarily all pedo baptists but if you've been following cross-politic, then uh, you knew you were going to get heckled anyway. So I guess <laughs> I, I, guess I can uh, just go for it. Um, so let me, let me start with, what do I mean by that? Um, obviously, the left is not uh, pedo baptists in the sense that they are you know, sealing their children with the mark of the covenant or post-mill in the sense that they believe Jesus is on his throne, growing his kingdom, and also I would say, obviously, I don't think that they're actually truly winning, because I wouldn't be post-mill if I thought that. But they are paedo-baptist in the sense that they claim the children, all right? If you think about that, uh, the liberal left claims the children. They assume that the younger population disproportionately leans to the liberal left. They are convinced that the children of today are the liberals of tomorrow. They are convinced of that, they act like that, and if you look around, I think right now, they are delivering on that conviction. It's really interesting because, uh, conversely, the evangelical church has a tendency to question the sincerity of the immature statement of faith that comes from a child. Even though Jesus taught us that the child's profession of faith is actually the standard that we should aim for, Luke 18, 17, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. 
nevertheless, we have a strong tendency to think that a statement of Christian, Christian faith can't be trusted unless it is first experienced being lost. Uh, this is a strange conviction that we have, that your statement of faith is not sincere until you've spent time on the other side. I mean, how many of you uh, grew up in a world where even if you grew up in the church, you grew up with a certain sort of insecurity where you don't believe that your statements are valid, uh, are tested, are proved, unless, you, unless you've actually fallen away first. And then that st- that. Um, testimony, the testimony of somebody who has lived on the wild side and then been converted, that's a real statement of faith and that's something that we can trust in and put confidence in. Um, think about this for a moment though. Does the left struggle with this doubt at all? I mean, do you, can you imagine someone on the liberal left disbelieving his friend's liberal uh, convictions unless his friend had first spent time as a fundamentalist? Right? Like, I don't know if you really believe in recycling and everything unless you've been at Bob Jones and then, you know, you've walked away from that world. Then you can, in, in, you can fully embrace this world and then we'll actually believe your convictions. That would just be bizarre. Um, they aim for the children as early as they possibly can and they plan on raising these kids always believing in uh, these convictions. And they are post-mill in the sense that they firmly believe that the future is theirs. The future belongs to them, right? They believe that they are writing the history books and they are projecting into the future the way this whole story is going. And they believe with great confidence the trajectory that they are on. That future generations will look back at them with gratitude and believe that they are, quote, on the right side of history. Right? They are on the right side of history. History is going a particular direction, and that direction is um, in line with their ideology, and future generations will look back at them and see them along this arc and be able to be grateful for them, praise them as their heroes. And I believe that they are winning in the sense that these strategies have been successfully employed or deployed by them over the last 50 years to significantly set back the um, advance of the gospel, right? These, these strategies are all around us and they are working. They are very powerful. I think that they have, <coughs> excuse me, impeded the growth of the gospel or the spread of the gospel. Let me give you some examples of how I see this um, playing out in the world that we live in. Um, Obama used to, um, he, he liked to, repurpose what was a great quote from Martin Luther King. This is the the King quote. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And Obama used to um, deploy this all the time, rework it in different ways. But the arc of the moral universe is long, but it, it bends towards justice. That is an optimistic view of the advance of life on this earth in a very particular uh, direction. Incidentally, just yesterday, Biden was giving the uh, first address to Congress, and he dropped this quote again yesterday, um, learning it from Obama. But Obama plotted the points of this arc, um, this this hopeful arc that we're supposed to have for the where the direction that history is headed in. He he pointed or plotted the points of this arc in his second inaugural address when he went on. He gave that quote, and then he said, "We the people." declare today that the most evident of truths that all of us are created equal is the star that guides us still 
just as it guided our forebears to Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall. Seneca Falls, Selma, and Stonewall. Remember, he's plotting an arc, and he's telling us that this is playing out in these certain events. Seneca Falls, Selma, Stonewall. Seneca Falls, famous women's right convention. Selma, where uh, Martin Luther King's march to Montgomery uh, began, and then Stonewall, a gay uh, nightclub in New York where riots broke out after the police raided the club. So if you think about that, okay, we've just plotted the points along this moral arc that is bending uh, towards righteousness and justice and and goodness. Um, He is connecting the civil rights movement of the 60s, Selma, to the question of homosexuality, Stonewall, which is before us now. Okay, And this attaches the stigma of 1960s racism, what was going on in the 1960s, to current opposition to sodomy. And the progress against racism that has happened over the last 50 years, such that now we can look back and say who was on the right side and who was on the wrong side of history. Okay, The, the, the sort of hindsight that we can have now as we look back at that is now claimed as already being established as we move forward and address the homosexual movement. All right, that, that stigma that happened uh, is now going to be um, projected against those that are now suffering what we might call homophobia, or what they might call homophobia. Thus the left can pronounce that it has won the argument before the conversation is even had. Right? It's already pronounced as over and as settled as the question of racism. It's already they're acting as if that has already been settled. Because they have effectively claimed the future and nobody wants to be on the wrong side of history. You see how they believe the future is theirs. They have an optimistic eschatology. They believe it and I think it's very effective the way they employ it. Think about it. Even the name progressive is chosen to um, imply that the future is theirs, right? If if they are progressive, progress is moving forward uh, into the future. It's what's going to happen next. Uh, So just by getting you to refer to them as the progressives, they're getting you to admit that they already own the future. They're the progressives. What what are you then? You're the regressive, I guess, right? So so they, they have a very optimistic understanding of where they're headed. And going back to the first point, part of why they believe the future is theirs is that they believe that the children are theirs. They have a claim to the children. One of the places where I think this is most obvious is in the um, near total domination that the left has of the public school system. Okay, that system is entirely owned by the left and it is the most dominant education system uh, in America. This is a quote taken from a survey by the Pacific Research Institute regarding political affiliation in the public school system. Among English teachers, there are 97 Democrats for every three Republicans in in the public school system, with the proportion being even more one-sided among health teachers, uh, with 99 Democrats for every one Republican. Um, That's, okay, the health class, this is where you're getting your sexual ethic. This is where you're being taught about your body, sexuality, and all of those things, and it is entirely dominated by one particular kind of person. Um, your, uh, your English class were very dismissive of the English teacher, but this is the person who's teaching your kids 
how story is understood, what a hero looks like, what a villain looks like, is very dominated by a particular uh, ideology. While there are slightly more Republicans among, among math and science teachers, among high school teachers overall, there are 87 Democrats for every 13 Republicans. That's not to say that Republicans are all glowing saints. I'm not painting them in you know, the obvious white hat. But at least they do not have the dismemberment of babies as a part of their party platform. Uh, clearly, this shows how one-sided the public school system is, and this ideological divide is pretty similar when you move up through the college faculty. This is education as a whole, as an industry, is very dominated by one particular ideology. And by controlling education, the left has taken over the discipleship of the next generation. This is their pedo-baptism. From kindergarten to college graduation, they control 17 years of discipleship of American children. Oh, and also they do it with your money. Uh, actually, I think if you think about it, almost all the plays that are being run on us are being run on us with our own money. And uh, this is something I think the left is very good uh, with is making sure that they never work with their own money, but with yours. Uh, think about it for a little bit. Almost every power move from the left is done so with significant support from your taxes. Public schools, Planned Parenthood, NPR. It just goes on and on, but it's mostly funded uh, by you. Now, it's, it's sad, I think, because for well over a thousand years, Christianity was the dominant culture-shaping force of the West. The, the, the Christian faith and the church is what shaped the left. It was what hold, held it all together. Cities were built with the cathedral at the center. If you go into old European cities, it's just built into the architecture of the city. Um, and even uh, moving east in America, you know, the older the city, the more you see this, the Christian church right at the center of, uh, of these cities as they were first built. Children, children were taught to read not so that they could get jobs, but so that they could read their Bibles. Right? That was the purpose of education. Um, and, and you go back for about 1,500 years in the West, the purpose of education uh, in the West has always been about so that you could pass your faith on to your children. That was the first and the primary reason why we taught literacy and we wanted students or our children to get uh, a real, true education. Um, isn't it weird then to think um, that prioritizing the Christian discipleship of your child over that of getting your kid a job, which is what we have now been told that education is entirely about, which is, I think, a move to pull the faith out of our ability. Our, it's to remove our ability to pass our faith on to our children. We're told now that the purpose of education is to get a job. But it, it's weird if you think about it for the last 1,500 years, that when education was prioritized or, or the main purpose of education was to pass on the faith, um, that that, um, that world that had that priority managed to build one of the most uh, fruitful um, um, heritages that we have seen in, in world history. Um, the, it is one of the most enterprising cultures in the world that was built by that conviction. And I think it's almost as if God has built into this world or has built this world in such a way that if you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added unto you. But I digress. Let me get back onto my point here. Um, yet over the last 100 years, despite the fact that um, Christianity has had such significance in the building of culture in the West, over the last 100 years, the church has lost its saltiness. 
In particular, we have succumbed, and I think this is becoming more and more apparent in our, in our current context, we have succumbed to the myth of pluralism. The strategy that says that Christians should simply aim for Christianity to be considered as one viable option among many. Okay? This idea that there are, there's a plurality of convictions that are out there, and it is not our place to insist that this is wrong and that Christianity is the only option, but we just want to get Christianity as one viable option uh, that is out there. We, we want to simply have our seat at the civic table amongst all of the others. Right? This is the strategy that I think we've been running for uh, a, a good couple of decades now. I got my introduction to the tactic of Christian pluralism when I uh, became president of New St. Andrews and then we became a part of a group called the, um, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, the CCCU, which is really the association of all the um, uh, fairly respected evangelical colleges uh, in America. And so we were a part of, of this group. And, um, and shortly after I showed up, um, one of the initiatives that, that the CCCU got really excited about was this initiative called Fairness for All. Uh, Fairness for All was the CCCU's response to another initiative, the Equality Act, which you probably have followed. The Equality Act is a pro-homosexual uh, uh, lobby um, movement and now an, an act that's been passed by the House. They're waiting to see if they can get it through the Senate. If it goes through, it's basically the death on Christian ministry. It, um, it requires that all of us accept uh, the left's definition of gender, marriage, and all of these things in order to, um, in order to basically be a part of the, uh, the place, the, the business force. Um, we would all be required to submit to that. So the CCCU wanted to come up with some sort of compromise to protect us from the Equality Act. And they put together this thing called the Fairness for All uh, Initiative. It was a, an a, attempt at a compromise that the CCCU crafted. And the basic idea behind Fairness for All was that Christians should acknowledge that we live in a pluralistic world. Okay, we live in a pluralistic world, and America is a pluralistic nation, and we just need to admit it. You just need to come to grips with the fact that that's the way America is. It's pluralistic. And we should act in accordance with this. Um, so Christians should acknowledge that we live in a pluralistic world, and we should apply this particular reading of Jeremiah 29.7, which is this verse that says, Seek the peace of the city. And this has become this real mantra for Christians trying to live within a pluralistic world. You need to seek the peace of the city. So you've got this city that is pagan with pluralistic forces all around, and you need to seek the peace of that. You need to just deal with the fact that it's not Christian and just settle in and just kind of thrive within that city. We'll come back to that Jeremiah passage in a little bit. And so for fairness for all, this meant that we as Christian colleges needed to actually advocate for homosexual rights in exchange for Christians being able to hold to a Christian sexual ethic. So what we would say is we, we positively argue in favor of the gay agenda in the broader civic realm 
in, in exchange for you allowing us to have a Christian ethic on our campus. Meaning I would, I would throw my support behind the prosecution of the Christian baker who had refused to make a homosexual wedding cake. I would support his prosecution in exchange for my campus being able to hold to this sexual ethic of uh, scripture. That is, that is being sophisticated. That is accommodating yourself to the reality of the pluralistic world uh, that we live in. Um, I, still, I still remember the meeting that I went to with all the Christian college presidents where this position was advanced. The first speaker that they brought forward uh, in order to address us was a gay legal activist. So it's a groom of, of Christian college presidents and we're being advised on how we ought to handle this legal strategy by a homosexual legal advocate. Uh, the next speaker up was a Mormon attorney. Um, the only two people to oppose this initiative at that particular meeting, uh, the only two um, Christian college presidents were uh, myself and uh, Len Munsell, president of Arizona Christian University, who also could see the direction this was going. But it was really uh, terrifying seeing this is um, cheerfully advocated by the leading association of uh, Christian colleges and universities. Um, now, fairness for all went nowhere. Um, <clears throat> what we discovered overnight was that pluralism was always a Trojan horse. You will make all of the compromises to get the seat at the table. And that was the thing. We were constantly told, listen, not all of this is great, but we, we have to get a seat at the table because it's so important to be at that table. So we'll compromise this, we'll compromise this, and we'll get the seat at the table. So you make all those compromises, you get the seat at the table, and then you discover that the other side has not compromised at all, and you've lost completely. You make all the compromises to get the seat at the table, and what you'll always discover is that they have not reciprocated. They make no compromises back in the other direction. The Wall Street Journal read, ran an editorial yesterday asking the question, why does President Biden keep inviting people to collaborative efforts and then walk out and act univocally, right? We're all going to come together. I want to hear all your opinions. I want to hear all, all, all your input and then walk out and make a decision that, had no, that took nobody's opinion into account. There are all these gestures at working across the aisle, but all of the action uh, rejects that completely. It's all a hollow gest gesture. He announces all his intentions to act with a bipartisan effort, reaching across the aisle, but then always acts without co any compromise uh, with the right. They never intended to share space with you uh, because you believe in one God. Your faith in one sovereign God who made the world was never, ever going to fit in. And so overnight, we were deplatformed. If you can look back on the last six months or so, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, we're seeing all the corporations that touted the virtues of diversity suddenly flip and allow only one state-sanctioned position. I just listened um, right before I uh, came out here. I listened to our mayor uh, give his state of the city address, recorded on YouTube because uh, we have to social distance to be kind. But I listened to his, his uh, YouTube State of the City address, just curious to see how he would summarize the past year in Moscow, which has been rowdy. Um, and it was interesting, no mention of uh, arrests, psalm sings, or any of those sorts of things. 
Um, and he has this very kind appeal at the end where he says that this whole pandemic thing uh, has been so hard and so difficult. And there have been lots of different opinions. Everybody has a different opinion in our town about it all and how it should be handled. But we just need to be kind and patient and respectful and make room for all of the different opinions that are in the room. We just, we, that's how we need to act. It's a very pluralistic sort of solution uh, to the whole thing. This from the man who sent the police to make arrests during a legal psalm sing. And no acknowledgement of that. This is the man who's currently prosecuting, Nate, your previous speaker, uh, for having made stickers. <laughs> he, ma- he made stickers that objected to what the city was doing. And he's being prosecuted with technically the possibility of years of jail time. Now, is that just terrifying that that kind of um, two-facedness can exist and it exists across uh, the board where it is all of these gestures of openness and I want to hear from you and I want to hear from you and everybody has a voice. But then when you get the action, it's very clear it's one direction only. Um, Pluralism is a two-faced tramp. But you can't be surprised by the sudden deplatforming. I'm, I'm glad to have sat under uh, Doug's preaching long enough to have been told for the last 25 years or so that there is no neutrality and that this was coming. This is, this is all like, I, I know that for a lot of people it's kind of shocking, but this is the sort of thing that Doug has just been, I think, drilling uh, home uh, again and again for uh, decades now. So it's all just kind of like, well, yeah, we knew that. Um, so it was not a surprise in any way. But here is the surprise, and I think this is the thing that got me. So, so overnight, over, well, um, maybe a few months, we, have been, we see this massive deplatforming. And the thing that has shocked me has been how thorough it is, how across, it seems like almost every spectrum, the platforms are taken away. And how scary it is that it seems like almost overnight you feel like you're almost like going to have to live out in the woods, you know, off of canned beans or something like that because of how, how quickly everything turned. And, and it made me ask the question, why over the last, I don't know, four or five decades had we not built anything, it seems like? Why, why had we not built any platforms? What do we have, like Hobby Lobby, or I, I don't, I'm not sure what is, what is left to us, and it makes me wonder, what have we been doing? What, what have we been doing? Given our convictions about our faith, and our understanding of the maker of the universe, how have we not been busy in this world crafting something that we actually owned that could, under, that could withstand this attack? Um, why has the platforming been so total, or the deplatforming been so total at the national level? And the answer is, I think we've been monkeying around. Um, we have been screwing around. I think Nate gave us a good description of the, the things that tend to distract us from the more substantive work of actually building. Um, but the other thing that we've been doing is this whole seeking the peace of the city, this very sort of um, half-hearted attempt at civil engagement that is really actually doing nothing. I think that the whole seek the peace of the city uh, mantra has been massively misapplied. It's probably something you've heard quoted a number of times. I just wanted to read to you from Jeremiah 29. 
This is uh, Jeremiah 29. I'll read verses 4 through 7. This is uh, God's word to Jeremiah, which he is to take to the Israelites. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. For in its peace, you will have peace. You seek the peace of this city, Babylon, because while it is peaceful, things will be peaceful for you while you are there. And so you Christians who live in New York City, it's a pagan city, but seek its peace because in its peace, you will have peace. Note, however, at the beginning of this command, that we're told that this was a command given during Israel's captivity. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. He's describing a strategy for people who are existing as POWs, right? You've been occupied, you've been defeated, you've been carried away, and you're going to have to settle in during this occupation. These are God's instructions for enduring captivity. But, the, but we are not currently in captivity. At least we are not supposed to be considering ourselves to be in captivity. And here is why. To understand this, think of the dream that uh, God gave to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. A statue with a head of gold, uh, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. The statue represents the period of Israel's captivity, the, the length of time that it would go from the removal of a king of Israel to the return of the true king of Israel. It's the period of their captivity, and the statue represents the nations that occupy, uh, occupy Israel. It starts with Babylon, and, and, um, and we, uh, Daniel interprets that for Nebuchadnezzar, that golden head is Babylon. And then we know from world history that it then goes to Persia, then to Greece, then to the Roman uh, Republic, followed by the Roman Empire. And this is the period uh, when Israel is occupied by another power. And at the beginning of this time, Jeremiah is told by God that the Israelites need to just settle down and hang loose. You don't have a king, you're occupied, and you need to wait. You need to wait. The sins of Israel have been such that you've, we've removed your king, and you need to wait. And the ground is going to wait until the king returns. And this Jeremiah 29 is the strategy for how you endure that kind of occupation. You, you seek the peace of the city. You wait until God moves. That was God's command to them. To violate that, to, to say, no, I don't want to do this. I want to overthrow Babylon, would have been to, to um, go against God. Okay? They were not commanded to try to overthrow Babylon. However, we know in Daniel 2 that when you get down to the feet, when you get down to the clay uh, mixed with iron, when you get down to the Roman Empire... That when there is an emperor in Rome, suddenly a rock is going to hit the feet of that statue. And that rock is going to crumble the whole statue. 
and the whole thing falls apart, but the rock starts to grow. And the rock grows until it fills the whole world. Um, look at Daniel chapter 2. This is the very end of that. Verse 44. And in the days of, the, of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and, con- and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. A rock was going to hit Rome, and that thing would crumble. And this new rock, Jesus Christ, would grow a kingdom that filled the whole world. Jeremiah 29 is no longer our marching order. We have been given a new command, right? That was a command for enduring the occupation. But we have been given a new command, and it came from that rock. Matthew 28. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I have broken that statue. It's crumbled to bits. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are not commanded to seek the peace of the city. We are told to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus at the Great Commission told us to take this message and to subdue all of the nations with it, expecting God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. I, so we are told to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So I am not, I am not to seek a secular definition of fairness that is going to be given to them and then reserve for myself just within my college campus a Christian understanding of what fairness is. Okay? I cannot have different standards because I don't live in a pluralistic world. Now, I can understand, I understand that seek the peace of the city as a passage can have enduring application now. I don't object to a pastor under, you know, exegeting that passage to explain the ways in which uh, we could use that now and learn from it now. And I understand people making a wise application of that passage to your current situation. But I strongly object to the idea that we should look at the world around us now and see a similar situation to the situation in which the Jews during the Babylonian captivity found themselves. And to conclude that we ought to deploy a strategy of hanging loose and not rocking the boat. We are not looking to get a seat at the pluralistic table because that table was crushed along with that statue. Our commander gave us our marching orders. Uh, with the Great Commission. He gave us a very clear mission, and then he left. And he said, I'll be back when you have completed this mission. Okay, we, we need to understand that we do not have permission to change the command that we were given. Okay, you, you can't, when, when the commander says, this is your job, I'll come back when you have finished it. For you to try to change that command is treason. Okay, that's uh, you're not allowed to break your commander's orders in that way. Our job is to continue to fulfill that mission till and until either it's done or we die and we meet Jesus in the sky. Those are those are our options that are that are before us if we want to be obedient. 
He said, I'll be back when you've completed this mission. So we need to understand we don't have permission to change the command. We do not have the right to look at our situation and say, well, surely Jesus didn't anticipate Joe Biden and AOC. Surely he didn't see this coming. Surely if he saw this, he would give us some slack and tell us, never mind, don't uh, try to advance the gospel, just seek the peace of the city. Surely he didn't understand how hard it would be uh, to pe- have people on Twitter mad at you. Right? Surely he didn't, didn't see that coming. But to abandon the mission or to redefine the mission to be less ambitious is disobedience. And we can't, we can't allow that. So let me, let me close with a, a specific exhortation. I want to make the argument that we as faithful, faithful Christians need to aim, take aim at the institutions. And by that, what I mean is I'm going back to that moment where the sudden deplatforming happened. And, I, and, I, and you're looking around saying, why hadn't we built these? Well, we should have. We should have. It was a part of our job. And repentance means going back, saying we're sorry for our negligence, and getting to work building the way we should have been all along. And in particular, I want to single out the institutions, and I'm picking the word institution deliberately because I think it's, it's somehow kind of offensive to the evangelical ear, right? There's, a, there's something about the institutions that we really dislike. There's an allergy that we have to it, which I think that we need to get over because that is where we're getting creamed right now. Um, here's what I mean. Evangelicals have pitted the inner subjective experience of the faith against the external building of faithful institutions. Okay, We've pitted those two things against each other. The inner subjective experience of evangelical faith versus the exterior um, institution. Um, we, we pit those two things against each other. I'm not going to do all of the work here, but I think if you were to think about this for very long, you would see how this is connected to our views of baptism and eschatology. Right? Those actually, part of our, our allergy to institution building has to do with how we think about um, baptism and how we think about our eschatology. So we've pitted the, the inner subjective experience of the faith against the external building of faithful institutions. This has created a divide between the internal and the external. And initially this sounds pious and faithful. After all, we know that external religiosity that does not have the internal reality is just hypocrisy and it's going to hell, right? We know that. If you have external religiosity, but you do not have internal regeneration, saving faith, a living gospel in your heart, if, if you don't have that, but you have uh, the t-shirt or the, or, the, or the buildings or whatever, you're still going to hell. Right? You need to have that internal reality. Um, plenty of baptized people with lots of religion on their outside, but none on their inside, will be saying, Lord, Lord, at the day of judgment, and Jesus will be saying, depart from me, I never knew you. Matthew 7. However, Jesus also taught that what was on the inside would always show up on the outside. If it's, in, if it's inside of you, it will be showing up outside of you. Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 43. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. 
For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What you are on the inside will show on the outside. I'm preaching through uh, the Gospel of John right now. And one of the things I'm starting to slowly see develop is that John has this um, long critique of uh, private faith. All right, It starts with Nicodemus who's coming to Jesus by night. And then you start to have these crowds who it will say in the text, they believed in Jesus. But then you'll find that these people who believed in Jesus won't confess it, won't openly say it because of a fear of the Jews, because of a fear of being thrown out of the synagogue. And you'll have the very same people who believe in Jesus are the people who are picking up rocks to stone him in, in just a little bit. Because you cannot have this private little faith that does not start to come out. The private faith that does not manifest itself, that does not come out, is temporary faith. It's what becomes temporary faith, and temporary faith is what becomes false faith. It's the faith that falls away. It's the faith that in First John, he's going to say, these are the people that went out from us, and that means they were never of us, because if they'd been of us, they would have remained. Right? So that this private faith is the temporary faith, and that temporary faith is false faith. If you have it on the inside, it comes out. All right? If you have it on the inside, it comes out. So hypocrisy is when the outside and the inside don't match. All right? Hypocrisy is when the outside and the inside don't match. You can have this by being a Christian on the outside and no Christian on the inside. Just having all the trappings of Christianity, but not the evangelical faith. But you can also have this by having a Christian inside and no Christian outside. As in, you have this, this vague belief but you're scared to let it show. You're scared to do anything with it. And I think John shows us that that is temporary faith and false faith. Both of those are a problem. Okay? Hypocrisy is when the outside and the inside don't match. Our outside must match our inside. We must live on the outside like we are on the inside. And this is why I'm saying we must learn to retake and rebuild the institutions. I go to so many... Um, functions representing an evangelical college inside some you know accrediting body or who knows what and and constantly run into people who have secret convictions that they're not willing to have the courage to to insist on those convictions being represented at the institutional level and because of that our college is compromised our schools compromised but it's not just a college thing it's across the church uh, in general but we don't have the courage of our convictions to demand that our institutions actually represent us but our outside must match our inside and we have not done the work that we should have been doing all of these years and that's why i say we i think have a real burden to rebuild the institutions um, I know that it looks grim, but I don't get my eschatology from the news. I get my eschatology from Scripture. And, and my king told me that our job is to advance. So I believe we have the command of advancing his kingdom. And if that's going to happen, we need to get to work building now. And a lot of times people will say it seems so fruitless to build at a time like this. But a time like this is exactly when you need to build. Oh. This is when we exact. This is the exact moment that we need to be doing that kind of work. 
Let me, let me just make a, a little bit of application, a little more specific application to wrap it up. I say that we need to build the institutions. Let me introduce that by saying, first and foremost, build a church. We need to build a church. A church is an institution, and it should be sort of our premier institution that we learn what it looks like to be organized, to manage a budget, to manage people, and to do it all really, really well. It should start at the church. Belong to a solid church. If you don't have one, move. If you can't move, start one. But belong to a solid church. If you can't do that, I don't think there's hope of you building anything else. You need to belong to a solid church. Be a member. Be under the authority and accountability of men who will call you up if you're being a jerk to your wife. All right? Take everything that Nate just described and ask yourself, do you have people in your life right now, particularly do you have a church in your life right now that would call you out if you are being that petty person, if you are sucking at life? Do you, do you have a church that would actually call you out for that? You need to be in a church like that. You need to have men who will tap you on the shoulder if you are being an absent dad and your kids are tubing it. Be where the word is faithfully preached and the sacraments are honored. This means a church where they're not afraid to discipline for sins that are clear in Scripture but are favored by our popular uh, culture, right? Do they have the courage to actually uh, discipline for those sins? Make the measure of the church faithfulness to God's Word and not faithfulness to your personal preferences. And then go to serve, not to be served. Go knowing that this is a body and you are one of the body parts, which means you have something that you need to actually give to this church, which means you're going to serve, not just in order to order a meal or something like that at a fast food drive through You're going to actually serve. And then the other thing I would argue or I would urge you to do is go with the intention of being able to be at this church 50 years from now. Go approach your membership like it's something that you expect to have multiple decades stacked on top of it. I know, given the nature of life, it may be that you are called to move. And I don't think moving and transferring to another church is a sin or a failure. Frequently, that's important. But so many people do not know how to actually live with the same people in fellowship over decades. If you don't believe me, see if you can find a church who's been around for 20 or 30 years and see if you can get a church directory that, that, you, that goes back in decades. A, a church directory from 10 years ago, from 20 years ago, and 30 years ago. And then start back there and look at the names and then start asking about the stories. And it's, it's, you, you don't notice it on a week-by-week basis, but on a 5-10 to ten year basis, you'll start to see that we do not know how to actually covenant to one another to live with one another through thick and thin. We solve awkward problems, business deals gone bad, um, misunderstandings, moments where somebody actually did call you out on a sin, but it hurt your pride. We solve all these problems by conveniently finding that we need to go to a new church. And we don't know how to actually covenant with people to live with them. Right? So go and be a member of a church with your eye on the very, very distant horizon expecting to last and seek the disciplines that allow you to last in a church. Then after you've done that, build a school. Build a school because the kids are ours. 
They belong to us, and we cannot keep handing them over to the left for them to be discipled. Build a school prioritizing the passing on of the faith to the next generation over all other ends. And so many things creep into schools, and there's so much mission drift, but you need to always keep your eye on the real goal, which is passing on the faith over multiple generations. Faithfulness is more important than acceptance to a prestigious college, more important than acceptance to college in, in, at all. It is more important than tuition subsidies that you can get if you make this deal with the government. It's more important than the competitive sports program that seems to um, burst your enrollment. It's more important than the vocational certification that's constantly creeping in and taking over the mission of the school. Build a school and support it. Did you know that in Calvin's Geneva, when the congregation said amen during an infant baptism, that they understood that amen to signify their mutual commitment as a congregation to fund that child's Christian education? They were all in it together saying, we're going to make sure there is a school and we're going to fund it for this kid so that he can be raised in the faith. Build the schools and fund the schools. Then build a business and dominate. Be the best so that you can employ other Christians. Make lots of money so that you can support other Christian ministries. But aim for the top. Aim for ownership. Aim for leadership. Not to serve your flesh, but to take your company and to serve God with it. Let me close with this one last observation. The Hebrew verb for um, speaking a proverb. Um, Hebrew is one of my kind of fun little pastimes. But the, the Hebrew verb for to speak a proverb is mashal. Mashal just means speak a proverb. They have their own verb for just that. Uh, so when you speak a wise proverb, you are mashaling. Um, when you, uh, if you have the wisdom of Proverbs, which I think uh, Proverbs 8 tells us is actually to have Christ, then you mashal, right? When you can speak the word of wisdom, that is mashal. But the Hebrew verb mashal has a second meaning. It means to rule as a king. When a king sits on a throne and rules from that throne, he is mashaling. All right? I don't think it's a coincidence that this one verb has these two meanings. When you have the wisdom of Christ, when you understand what God's word is telling you this world looks like and how you ought to behave in it, when you have that wisdom, when you have the wisdom of Christ, you are called to rule as a king. All right? You are called to rule as a king on this earth. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ, our rock, who has struck down the nations and crumbled them. Go, therefore, and disciple the nations. Let me close in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for what you have given us in Christ. May we be faithful with it, and may we be courageous with it. And praise things in your Son's name. Amen. I hope you guys really enjoyed that talk. Man, uh, Dr. Merkel was really bringing it. And, and we all know the liberals are post-mill. Right, they're winning. They got a vision for the future, and so I hope you guys walk away with that—a vision for your children and where you want to take um, the future of your family. And with that said, you gotta download the Fight Laugh Feast app. Go to your favorite app store, download the Fight Laugh Feast app. You get all our content in the daily news brief. You get Deftwire. Uh, uh, Deftwire is uh, nicely set up in the app, so you can read through the news articles that we're reading through throughout the week, and that often end up in our. Uh, daily news brief and then of course so you get access to all the shows both the u.s fight laugh feast network and the canadian fight laugh feast network so download the app go to your favorite app store type in fight laugh feast and download the app until next time love god and go fight laugh and feast this is cross politics